Welcome to the second episode of the Cood Street Roundtable. This month, we're discussing Charlie Jane Andrews' terrific second novel, All the Birds in the Sky, that was published in January by Tor. This month, the roundtable is me, Jonathan Strahan, regulars uh, James Bradley and Ian Mond. And hello. Hello, Ian. Hello, James. Hello. And this month, by possible regular but semi-regular Gary Wolf, who's dropping in to talk about the book, which he reviewed for Locus a few months ago. So, hello, everybody, and welcome to the roundtable. Thank you, thank Jonathan. You. Thank, you for thank you for inviting us. This is, <laughs> this is actually the first roundtable I've participated in. And as, uh, as I expressed my concerns, not concerns, interest, curiosity about uh, talking about one novel for an hour if it's not Moby Dick. <laughs> well, I have to say, and uh, I'd be interested in James and uh, Ian's feeling about that, we had no trouble at all talking in depth about uh, the thing itself uh, the other, the other okay. last month. No, not, none at all, because we did more than just talk about the book. We talked about Robert's career as well. Yeah, well, and other things. Yes, and other things. You know, and uh, one of the great things, hopefully, about what we're trying to do here in doing this uh, spoilerific kind of a discussion uh, and this kind of uh, after post-publication discussion is you can actually look at all the various issues and you can actually choose, as we have with the Adam Roberts books, book and with Charlie Jane's book, a book that has enough gnarly stuff about it to actually discuss at some length and I don't know if you guys have read around a about the novel, I've just been, been spending some time about it, I read it uh, a few weeks ago when I was going over to Melbourne and I think there's a lot of really substantial stuff to talk about so I don't think we're going to have trouble now, last month uh, we started off talking about the author and their career and I guess I must ask you both maybe Gary and Ian first um Maybe Gary first. When did you first become aware of Charlie, Charlie Jane? Um, well, I-09 certainly probably was the first thing. I guess the first work of fiction that, that caught my attention was six months, three days, if I got the numbers right on that. I think you um, do, yes. Which is, which is, which is Hugo. And then uh, as, as somebody who I chatted with, and this is an odd thing that I think she may have in common with Adam, who is actually a scholar of the history of science fiction. Uh, she, I, I, I talked with her and like a lot of people who are younger than I am, I was surprised by the depth and and um, quirkiness of her reading in the field. She uh, she seemed to have really good critical attitudes. So to some extent, um, I think we'd had a couple of conversations. I'd read a few short stories, but I hadn't really been familiar with her fiction in any depth until I read this novel. Yeah. How about you, Ian? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I actually never read any of her. I haven't read any of her short fiction. This is actually the first exposure to her fiction. This novel. So yes, I, I missed the. Uh, I, I knew about the uh, publication of the the, the novelette. Is it a novelette? Uh, yes, novelette. Uh, yeah, Henry, which yeah. was on. It was on Strange Horizons, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And uh, I, I, yeah, it sort of uh, was it was a tour.com. Yeah. Oh, you know what. Whatever. It, the, the thing is, it's it, it, it skipped me by. I, I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, but uh, I know of Charlie Jane from Io Nine. I mean, which is yeah, she's. I think she's done wonders uh, for that site. Really made it a uh, pivotal, a pivotal and integral part of speculative uh, fiction culture, etc. How about you, uh, you, you, James? When did you really become aware of Charlie Jane? Um, look, a while ago, I've read a few of the short stories which I liked. Mm -hmm. um, I, like most people, am a 
chronic consumer of io9 um uh, a site which i both like and you know get irritated with occasionally um uh, but it's often fantastic uh, look i i'm mostly aware of her i must say you know, I was aware of the fiction, but I'm very aware of her in her io9 capacity. And I've always thought she was interesting because uh, possibly this is what Gary was saying, uh, that there's a sense in which she sort of straddles both a, a kind of almost fanish kind of investment in the scene with really quite sophisticated and literary tastes, which is a reasonably yeah. unusual combination of, you know, kind of interests or approaches. Um, and, and I've always liked that about her writing, that sense that it, you know, that it's it kind of gets the that kind of fan-based pleasure in things, but it's also really interested in in books and in movies and work that's trying to kind of push the boundaries in different ways, which is not, not necessarily always the case. <laughs> I think it's really mm-hmm. interesting that you describe her like that because if I was trying to synopsize her, I think I would describe Charlie Jane as a 21st century Futurian. And what I mean by that is, if you look back at the classic, you know, the Futurians of the 1930s, there were these smart, literate geeks living to some degree in a fan culture, uh, very much inward focused on that. And if you look at Charlie Jane today, here's this very clever, uh, gifted journalist and writer and performance artist and editor who's living in this geek space, almost it would appear, if you look at her from the outside at least, entirely, you know, uh, because as you're right, I mean, first as a writer for, and now as the editor-in-chief for io9, I mean, I was genuinely surprised that she had been working in the field for as long as she has, because I only, like yourselves, I probably became aware of her five, six, seven years ago, um, but actually she's been writing regularly since the late 1990s, I was deeply surprised to listen to a, an interview with her on uh, Rocket Talk, where she was saying that she's probably written and published about a hundred short stories. Like, oh, really, the hundred? Yeah, yeah. And when I went looking on um, the Internet Speculative Fiction database, even they only track about forty of them, and most of the significant ones have all been published on Tor. And they exist in a really kind of interesting, similar space, and to some degree, uh, a similar space to the book that we're going to be talking about now, because they they play with genre, they're interested in time, time travel, science fiction tropes, they blend gender perspectives as much as genre perspectives, and you see that in story after story after story, which I think is really interesting, and that she is, whilst the work can be quite different when you read it on a case-by-case basis, I think you really do get a feeling of a personality writing. I mean, when you hear her talk, she's, she is a, she's a super geek. Everything's awesome and fun and super. And some of that personality soaks into the writing that she's been doing. But it's also really smart. And um, I think that's what may, has made her stand out up until now. I mean, this is her first, both her first science fiction and fantasy book of any kind and her second novel, the book. Ah, can I jump in there? You keep saying second novel. What was the first novel? Uh, she wrote a a mainstream novel, a mainstream young adult novel, uh, back in 2005, um, the name of which escapes me for the moment. Oh, no, wait a moment. Choir, Choir Boy. Boy. Choir Boy. It was published by Soft Skull Press in 2005. Yeah. So that, that's, that's her first novel, but it's not genre at all. 
Uh, she's she wrote a non-fiction book called The Lazy Crossdresser that was came out in 2002 and was reprinted uh, last year. Uh, has also edited a book called She's Such a, Go- a Geek: Women Writing About Science, Technology, and Other Stuff, which she co-edited with Annalie Newitz, who used to be the editor-in-chief on io9 and who uh, Charlie Jane took over from. So, I mean, she's been writing for a long time, and actually, even though it's not a genre book, Choir Boy was nominated for the Lambda, which kind of overlaps science fiction and fantasy stuff, I believe. So can I ask, does, it, does this mean she can't be uh, on the Locus first novelist uh, category? Because I, I would be surprised if everyone was aware that this was her second novel. Okay, my, my answer to that is, okay, for the purposes of the Locus Awards, I, it is not, I believe, a first novel. Because Locus doesn't restrict itself to genre, it says anything by the author. Okay. However, for something like the Crawford, which Gary could comment on because he's the administrator for the award, I do believe it is eligible because it is her first uh, science fiction or fantasy novel. Is that correct, Gary? That's uh, well, it's, it's correct. It's correct and not correct, and it raises the central issue about the novel. The Crawford Award, which was established by years thirty some years ago by Andre Norton, with a specific requirement that it be a fantasy, a first book. It could be a collection of short stories, as it was, for example, with Mary Rickard uh, or Joe Hill, but uh, it's not science fiction. So the question that's going to come up in next year's Crawford discussion is going to be, does the fantasy content of this qualify as a fantasy novel despite the science fiction content? <laughs> That'll be an interesting conversation. And I think, you know, really, it's, it's going to touch on our, our, the conversation we'll get to in a few minutes about the book itself, and that is just how many elements have been brought into the novel that Charlie Jane's written. And there's an awful lot of them to, to be discussed. Um, I think it, before we get to the book, I think we'll get to it pretty quickly. Um, I'm interested in what you guys think about Charlie Jane's role in the field, because I kind of feel like she's a kind of character that we've seen before who proves to be a, an important figure in the field and really have tend to have a long career. Because the, the, she seems to be the kind of person who uh, forms the sinews of the field, helps connect everybody. You know, she's an editor, she's a writer, she's a commentator, she's very engaged. But, and you could, we could talk about this in terms of the fiction, do you think there's a risk with that? also of ending up with a closed worldview because it's just inward looking into the geek space? I don't. Okay, fair enough. Anybody well, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the Futurians, the, uh, the, the central Futurian, the person who exactly matches the description you just gave is Frederick Pohl. Uh, he was in the center of fandom, he was an editor, uh, he was a very influential editor. Uh, his fiction was very, uh, I guess pulp-oriented at the beginning, and yet became a fairly public figure. And in, in, in a way, you could make an argument that, uh, you know, as, as a public cultural figure, I suspect that uh, 20 or 30 years from now, Paul may be remembered as a more important writer than Asimov was. I could believe yeah, that. But, but, you know, I mean, with Charlie, uh, she's, uh, because of her role in io and she's, she's become, well, she's a gatekeeper. I know we don't like using that yeah. term, but... She is now a gatekeeper. But I think when you read her articles, whether they're reviews or the sort of, you know, books that you might be interested in that you wouldn't be normally aware of type articles that she writes, there's a clear, I think, awareness that, that of her role now. Um, and, of course, there is. I mean, because she's very smart and, 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 would, and would see that. And, and so, uh, look, yeah, there's always a danger. But, I mean, you're always going to have one, two, three 
tastemakers of importance who who are going to play this role because that's just the nature of this thing. And uh, and and I think she does it very well. So I don't I don't think there's a danger as such. I, I guess. Moving into discussing the book, the first thing I'm going to sort of ask, and maybe I'll, I'll put my own view out whilst the birds tweet somewhere in the background in one of your uh, audio feeds, is, did you like the book? I mean, everything else, you know, did you enjoy it? I mean, I found that I greatly enjoyed this book. I read it on a plane on the way to Melbourne and in a hotel there before I went to a concert. And I thought it was terrific and compelling and really engaging, um, pretty much across its, admittedly, by modern standards, brief length. But I thought it was a really engaging book. What do you guys think? Who wants to jump in first? I'm, I'm happy to go. I, I enjoyed it enormously, Jonathan. Um, I, I Look, I had a few issues early on, um, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah. But um, I liked it more and more as it went on. And I found, I guess, the kind of larger the kind of metastructure of what it was doing really, really interesting and ultimately I thought really moving. You know, I, I really, really liked it. Ian? Um, yes, I did like it a lot. Uh, I have reservations. Um, actually, distinct from James, sort of as we get, as it progresses, my reservations began, began to grow, which, again, we'll talk about. But, yeah, look, I mean... <laughs> I'm reading a lot at the moment, and this thing engaged me. This this novel engaged me from from page one to to the last page. And as a, as my cynicism and uh, just uh, my um, apathy to certain types of fiction grows, um, it's uh, it's quite refreshing to read something that uh, I could just uh, not not switch off my brain, but just let go with it. You know, let, <laughs> I could turn certain parts of me off and just go with the flow. Now, those things did connect on towards the end of the book. They clicked back on. But still, I was able to run with the novel, which was always, it's always a nice thing to do. Yeah. Gary? I, well, I, I, I reviewed the novel, I think, in January, and, and I've thought about it more since then. Keep in mind I haven't read it since probably October or November. Uh, my sense it was pretty much the same, that, the, that, that from the beginning, these were extremely compelling characters. This was an interesting, uh, I thought, risk-taking book. And I, I had some... Uh, some issues later on. I, I thought the first third of it was terrific, even from just a purely YA point of view. But the thing that I think one of the things that kept me reading was the fact that uh, that she was taking a number of risks in the novel that that usually don't pan out. Um, when, when James had mentioned the sort of the sort of geekiness, self-referential thing that that has spoiled a number of novels. And I was worried about that. I was worried at one point, my God, what if this turns into a Robert Asprin novel? Um, <laughs> at another point, I was thinking, is this going to be, um, is, is, is the science fiction stuff too referential? And every time she pulled it off, I think. I mean, she, she kept working in one more or less predictable narrative frame after another and never quite falling into the traps that she set for herself. Fair enough. Well, perhaps as, as, as the kickoff point, I'll do something that I don't particularly like doing. I mean, I know that Ian's podcast tends to synopsize books, and I'm not really sure how to do it. I'm going to read the flap copy, and then I'm just going to throw it open to conversation. So if you've not picked up a copy of um, All the Birds in the Sky, we expect you to have basically read the book. But anyway, in case you haven't, the book's described as... From an early age, Patricia, Patricia Delphine and Lawrence Armstead had a different and sometimes opposite ways of seeing the world. 
Patricia could talk to animals and even turn herself into a bird, while Lawrence built a supercomputer and a time machine. As they navigated the never-ending nightmare that is junior high school, they became wary allies until an enigmatic guidance counselor with a hidden agenda intervened. They didn't expect to see each other again, and yet ten years later, they're both adults living in the hipster mecca San Francisco, and the planet is falling apart around them. Patricia is a graduate of Eltisley Mays, the secret academy for the magically gifted, and Lawrence is an engineering genius who's trying to save the world. As Lawrence and Patricia reconnect, they find themselves drawn into the opposite signs of a war between science and magic, and the fate of the world depends on them both, probably. So that's the book. It's, it's, or that's the description of the book. It doesn't really do it justice. It is, no. for my money, not a science fiction novel or a fantasy novel or a science fiction, sorry, or a science fantasy novel. It's a science fiction novel and a fantasy novel. That's what made it interesting. There's so much intertwined. It, it starts off as a what? In fact, here's a, maybe I'll, I'll throw out a question, then we'll just follow each other around the conversation. But it has this: the book comes in two pieces. The first quarter of the book or so is a classic young adult no, uh, you know, YA novel, and in many ways, it's the part that Ian and I, when we were meeting in Melbourne, discussed as mm. a red hot mess. And I described it as red hot mess myself, not because I think it's actually is a mess, but because it's the Here's another thing and another thing, and isn't this neat and cool and gosh and wow? And almost seems too circumstantial to be believable at times, though that's the nature of the form. And then it moves on to this really very, very interesting uh, adult kind of science fiction and fantasy novel. And I, I know, Gary, in your review, you said you weren't sure those pieces gel together. I think they actually gel together really well. I think that the young adult f- part of the book foregrounds the characters and the development and the issues in a really clever way. Well, she nails the way... The, the clueless parent paradigm is something that she does really, really well. The uncomfortable parts of the early par- part of the novel were uh, had me feeling uncomfortable because I, I've heard... Uh, you are all parents, and maybe I'm not, but I've heard parents say exactly those things to their kids in exactly that tone of voice. <laughs> So what do you guys think, uh, James? Think? Oh, I get to go first, do I? Yeah, um, well, look, someone has to go first, James. Uh, all right, look, I, as I said, I liked it very much. I mean, I think one of the things, uh, look, let me say two things about it. One is a series of things I liked about it very much, and one is my reservations, because interestingly, it sounds to me like my reservations are the reverse of other people's. Um what I liked about it is, I mean, the book the book sets up something. It's, you know, it sets up basically C.P. Snow's two cultures in science fiction and fantasy um, and, you know, slams this kind of fantasy which is about a kind of awareness of nature, the presence of nature um, and involvement with nature. So it kind of it's a fantasy represented, you know, which takes on board that kind of interest in the natural world, that sense that science is opposed to magic thing, and slams it up against a kind of science fictional narrative. Um, so it sets up, as well as doing that in a kind of direct way, so that's actually what's going on. You've got a witch and a scientist. It's kind of doing it at a kind of meta level. So the two genres are kind of slamming up against each other. And what it's trying to do, I think, is to kind of find a language for talking about a moment in history when we're seeing all of those kind of assumptions we make about the boundaries between the natural and the technological breakdown. You know, so it's a kind of Anthropocene novel. And I thought that was a really interesting approach to what seems to me to be a major problem for lots of writers, which is how do you talk about this stuff? 
So in a sense, you know, it kind of reiterates the, I, I guess, the the kind of narrative of the book at a kind of generic level. And that that creates this really interesting fusion and, you know, a fusion which is actually echoed in the, in the ending of the book. Now, I thought that was really interesting and I'm happy to talk about this more in a minute um, because I do th- something I've been interested in for quite a long time is the way writers are finding to talk about the kind of alteration of the world around us, the alteration of our ideas of nature, the alteration of ideas of technology as well. Um, and I, I, I thought it was a really interesting and really fresh and very clever way of getting at that. And I have to say, I actually thought the ending where – I'm not sure I should really talk about it in explicit terms. No, 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 say it because I think it's critical. You've got it. Yeah, got right. it. Look, I, I, look, I thought the final scenes where the AI and the world tree combine – I found incredibly moving, you know, they, they were actually the thing that I was really, really moved by, you know, in a sense that, that AI and it's, and it's kind of personality in a weird kind of way worked more for me than the more human stuff that had been going on through the book. Now, my mild reservations, you know, and they are kind of mild, is that in the first half particularly, I, you know, Obviously, one of the things the book is doing is engaging in a kind of generic play. So it's using all of these bits of other books mm. and, you know, playing with that stuff around. Now, my problem is that I, you know, I'm old and cranky and I, you know, I, I, I'm fairly uncharmed by a lot of that stuff at the best of times. Um, and there's a level at which I felt like, you know, you probably need to be charmed by it to be charmed by someone deploying it in a playful way, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I kept thinking through the first third, look, you know, I understand that this is deliberate, but this feels incredibly familiar to me. I feel like I've read this already. Um, and, you know, obviously that's because it's using a series of tropes that I know, but it was kind of, uh, I found that a bit difficult. Um, and, you know, I, I, this, I mean, this is a matter of taste. You know, the, the scene where suddenly we see the assassin and suddenly we're in a kind of Neil Gaiman story. You know, I just, I, I, I'm just not the audience for that stuff. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> can I just, well, can I just jump in? Yeah. That was where that was where I had issues, and I think it actually it's a problem. And I don't want to get negative straight away, but a problem throughout the novel. That tonally, it shifts. You know, partly it's a strength because I actually get quite excited when a, an author decides to change tone sometimes mid-sentence, it feels like, wow, you know, it's as if they woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm just going to throw a Douglas Adams bit in here. Because that whole two-second watch bit, um, bit like, and the assassin who's introduced uh, early in the book, they feel like they're, com- they're coming from a completely different novel in that the two-second, the, the, the watch that sends you two seconds into the future is a gag. I, I mean, it's not, it's yeah. no, never really taken seriously. It's a gag. I mean, it's, it's a sort of... A, a geek uh, signifier, you know, like yeah. other people have built the watch as well, you know, and if you if you figured out how to build this watch, then you're obviously uh, a science geek. Uh, and and but, but it's played, I think, as a gag, and so is, in a sense, the assassin. Uh, you know, he's because he's that cliched, <laughs> sleeps on the bed of nails type assassin. But it feels like something that a Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams would have thrown in in a comedy novel. And mm. yet, there's so much serious stuff around it about outside, you know. Because it's outside, especially that first third is very much outside of fiction, and it, it continues on later. But there's that out, the sense that we've got two outsiders here, trying to interact in the world and trying to find their place in the world, and it's quite serious and very poignant at times. And you've got these funny, these odd comedy moments, which both pushed me out. But I thought, hey, that's I didn't expect that either. So I don't, I didn't know how to feel about it. Sorry. But those comedy that's, moments are those comedy moments are exactly what drew me in in the earlier chapters. I was. 
Uh, I was amused to see that there was a moment when, or very early on, when when the novel won me over through a completely unlikely and irrational move, which I think I mentioned in the review, but the the two kids are watching people descend on the escalator and trying to guess what they are and what they do from their footwear. Uh, And and, and the boy, what's his name? Uh, Lawrence. Daniel. Yeah, right, Uncle Lawrence says something like, oh, this guy is probably a trained assassin. And then we shift point of view to the trained assassin, and it turns out to be a trained assassin, who is, I think, a wonderful, darkly comic character. He's, and, and that specific transition, that kind of transition into complete nonsense, and then it turns out not to be nonsense, is something that uh, I think one of the... I, I, I said this in the review, and it turns out later Charlie Jane agreed I was right. One of the influences behind that kind of rhetorical gesture is Daniel Pinkwater, uh, who's never quite written science fiction or fantasy, and yet everything he writes is a little bit of both, but who's completely willing to go off on an S.J. Perlman tangent by following a different character into a completely different uh, narrative space. Yeah, but but after the young adult section, that element dies away. The, the assassin pops up again, but now in a much grittier way, not in a tongue-in-cheek yeah, right. way. And, and the two-second watch also pops up, but it's less of, it's, 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 a, it's a faded version of what it was in the first third in, in terms of what it, you know. And so it, it, it doesn't continue on that element. And so, you know, again, it felt a bit like, well, uh, maybe it's a thematic thing, you know, the kids grow up, so the, the, the tone of the novel has to grow up with that. I don't know, but... Yeah, in a sense, I would have. If you're going to do that early on, I, I would have liked to have continued throughout the book. Does that make sense? Well, I, 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 I can understand that argument. I, I enjoyed the fact that the assassin turned out to be really dark. He sends Lawrence off to this absolutely horrible boarding school, and then still later turns out to be a pathetic failure. Who we almost have to, to we have to reassess him at three or four different times during the novel. And I thought that was one of the risks I thought she was taking. Can she okay. really? shift this character that radically three times in the novel. Well, certainly it's a book where every character gets an arc. You know, yeah. Everybody's moving forward. Everybody's changing. I mean, I felt that in that opening section of the book, for all that, is, that it is a, a melange of oh, Robert Heinlein's sort of um, can-do kind of science geek kind of kid up, up against almost like a spy kid's kind of a plot at times... For, for all that it's that, and it, it is that sort of mishmash of, in a good way, a mishmash of classic elements of young adult fiction that we've read, movies, TV, whatever else we've come across, all blended in. And try to foreground a setup where it doesn't make it immediately obvious that you're going to see a story that takes on a really kind of dark subject, or a really, really concerning subject, in the, if you like, the, the death of our world as it is happening around us now and as it's going to be happening in a, you know, in, in, in a number of years hence. You know, so I, my feeling was she was trying to connect us you know, smoothly or not, not with both the points of views of the characters there, and how she was going to be spiralling two sets of concerns around one another until they finally come together at the end that James is talking about. And that is one thing that does happen. I mean, you have the, the, the science thing spiraling through the whole story right until it gets landed with the appearance of the AI who is this for, for two thirds of the novel is, is, is a gun on the shelf that doesn't go off and maybe that's right. what we'll come to in a second uh, and then you have you know, the fantasy going around it 
I will ask you about that. With the why was there any person who's going? How can these people not have known this yet? With the, with Peregrine, with yeah, Peregrine, with Peregrine. Yeah. I mean, oh yeah, I mean, I, the yeah. moment that teardrop thing is is introduced and it's got all these smarts attached to it, I was going, well, that's the AI, isn't it? I mean, it's it's. I mean, I, obviously you could say that it, talking about it in hindsight, but genuinely, when I actually noted it in my e copy of the book, when, when that teardrop gets gets said here, the, the, everyone's walking around with these things that actually can predict basically the person you need to meet and when your bus is coming and sort of figures all that, that algorithmic stuff out. I thought, yeah, that's the AI. AI. That, that's it. And, it and, and I was a little annoyed that she kept that revelation so late because to me it was, it was absolutely – I thought it was actually on purpose it was so obvious, but maybe not so. I don't know. Did, did anyone else think it was utterly obvious or was we just – we've read too much of this stuff? I, I, you know, I don't know what it is. I thought it was incredibly obvious that Peregrine, the AI that was built by Lawrence and then, if you like, ensouled by uh, Patricia, uh, that Peregrine was the basis for this Facebook relationship kind of life-organizing kind of tool. I thought it was really fascinating. and that I mean, okay, I sat there for two-thirds of the book waiting to see how, in the most cliched version of this story the Peregrine AI would simply become godlike, evolve and save everybody and, and, and get rid of the problems, or magic would evolve to such a point that it would become godlike and save, save the world and change everybody's problems. What happened was much more interesting, I thought. Yeah, that's true. You know, that, much that's, more interesting. That's very true. You know, you know, the fact that uh, Charlie Jane chose to have Peregrine look at the world around them and say, I'm going to focus on people and you know, the way I'm going to make lives better is by making everybody's day better. I'm going to make it easier, as you say, to get the bus, to find a call, uh, you know, so some tissues when I need to wipe my nose, to get that great reser- booking reservation, to meet those friends. And that's what I'm going to focus on because that simple human level is what's going to get us through the Anthropocene collapse was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Well, there was a sense at the end, uh, toward the end, Peregrine says something along the lines of wizards and cyborgs are the same thing. So what, what you're prepared for in, in a novel like this, of course, is, is something, as you say, something becomes ascendant. Uh, the, uh, it, it looks like a contest in the end. And what I found, there were, there, there, there were problems I had with the build-up to this uh, kind of final dualism. And, and, and Charlie Chain is interested in dualism. It's interesting to think that you know, her most famous short story is one that deals with one character who can see many futures and another character who can only see one future. And I think that dynamic is at work here as well. Uh, but I, 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 as I saw the ending coming, I thought, oh my God, this is going to turn into uh, Yggdrasil versus the Forbin Project. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> something absolutely... And, and somebody's going to win. And what? And she didn't go in any direction I thought she had to go in. And that, that I, I admire that. I'm not sure how she did it. Yeah, look, I, look, I think the final, the final thing, and to be honest, the whole second half is really, really clever. I mean, I, you know, I, mean, I feel a bit bad because I was perhaps concentrating on what I didn't like about it before. But, I mean, I do think that moment, in terms of finding both a kind of narrative solution but also a, a philosophical solution to the dilemma, it's a really, really clever 
clever device that, that, that she pulls off. I was thinking also, you were talking before, Jonathan, about the, the range of influences. And one of the influences on it is one that I actually don't think gets talked about all that much, but I actually think has an increasing influence on fiction. And I think this is about, you know, there being a generation of writers who grew up just kind of consuming them, which is that I actually think there's a, a really strong element of kind of comics and graphic novels through all of this, that, that there's a kind of a sense of a kind of, I guess, a kind of intellectual daring and kind of playfulness that's here, you know, and, and it, it comes out of, you know, you see it in the old Lee Kirby Fantastic Fours, you know, you see it, you see it in kind of um, writers like Matt Fraction now, but that that sense of kind of delight and playfulness in the kind of craziness of the thing, and there's a kind of looseness to it. And, and you know, I, I don't think anyone ever acknowledges it. It's funny, I was I was reading Patrick DeWitt recently, the, the I think he's a Canadian writer who was on the Booker Shortlist a while ago for a book called Sisters Brothers, you know, which at one level is a very literary book, but seems to have the same kind of influence. There's a kind of playfulness there, um, which, which I, I, I think is always worth acknowledging. I don't know if other people have views about that. I think playfulness is something that I found very attractive about the book, and I, I mean, I mentioned Pinkwater earlier, but one of the things that, when Jonathan was reading the um, the official blurb, I don't think any of the wit and playfulness came across in that blurb at all. It's 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 actually uh, it has some very funny bits in it, and uh, one of the things that I'm always on the lookout for in contemporary fantasy, and you hardly find, other than Terry Pratchett, are are people who, who obviously have read Woodhouse or who have w- read Thurber or who have read Pinkwater in this case and, and are willing to bring that uh, s- sort of aspect in. There's, there's a sense of joy about the book. There's a sense that I got that she simply absolutely loves what she's drawing on for her sources and she wants to play with them. And, and let's not forget, you know, J.K. Rowling and, uh, and, and yeah. those, you know, because we've got a magic school in there as well. And I have to say... Oh, that's true. I have to say, um, uh, thankfully, the magic school is not a because I thought we were going to end up in the magic school for a good chunk of the novel as well. And yes, we do sort of get back flashbacks to the magic school, but I I did say thank God we're not stuck in the magic school. That that's just a more a character plot point than a than a big chunk of the narrative. Uh, it plays a role, don't get me wrong, but it's not it, when when the book moves from young adult to that adulty type phase. We don't get that sort of chunk of magic school, and and then the corollary that I've said that wrong right. of, of, of what Lawrence would be doing in some sort of science fictional milieu where he's doing a school type thing. So we don't get that 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 um, university section, and I think that was actually a very good move. Yes, there's flashbacks, but they're not uh, big bits. Of, they're not big bits of gristle that. You know, you go, oh God, just get past the magic school bit, so we can get back to the proper story, which is no. But it's what, worth it's worth noticing that the magic school also splits into two opposing camps. Yes, it does. No, yes, yes, and, and that magic itself has two opposing elements, which science doesn't, if I'm correct, in this in this book. It, it's it's linear. Is that or one? It's one sided. Is that true? Am I right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, because I think it and, is. and, and I, this is a question I ask you guys because I failed year ten maths. Um, it's that the science that's depicted in the novel, other than the climate change aspects, and James might have a view on this, isn't really the hard SF that we t- that you guys on Coot Street, the proper Coot Street, talk about often. It's more that fantastical SF of time travel and, you know, um, matter transmission and that sort of thing, the sort of thing that 
it isn't really scientifically accurate. I mean, it, it, it's got that gloss on it. So my only my issue was, given that I have no real knowledge of physics or anything, um, was that that the, the reason why these two things could get together is because that the science wasn't hard enough. That if the science was harder, it might have made that distinction clearer. It was, yeah, it was more a fictional version of science fiction of science. Well, than a genuine version of science. That makes no sense, but no, I'm pretty sure you know what I'm talking about. No, it's expansive. I, I, I circle around this because, I mean, I think what you've got is you've got someone who, and I think James is exactly right, it's a really playful book, heavily influenced by, by graphic novels, and again, I would say by, by movies, by television, something which Charlie talks about, Charlie Jan talks a lot about in, on I and other places, because I think it's an intensely visual book, right? It's both a very, very visual book, very, very binary book, a very, very playful book in the way it juxtaposes its imagery. Um, but in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of the hard SF-ness of it, I think it takes two things. I think it takes the strong visual element of science fiction and presents that. And I think it also ta- it, it, it tends towards the whole issue of quantum stuff, quantum physics, because that's the magical end. That's I mean, the point where... It seems to me magic and science blend the most or where we get into issues of quantum anything. And this is the quantum end of the spectrum. And it does avoid the Asperger-y kind of hard SF thing, but I think that's its strength. It, it keeps the whole book warm and approachable. So, so if, if Lawrence hadn't been sitting there talking about, Kim Stanley Robinson taught me this term, eigenfunctions for, the, for a good chunk of the book and, and velocities and, and lunar orbits and all that sort of stuff, um, then, uh, then it would it obviously would have been a different book, but but that at least would have been truer to the science aspect, wouldn't it? I'm being I'm being I'm being a little bit provocative here on purpose. <laughs> Maybe it would, but I I think um, if you like, what Charlie Jane's done is true to the the soul of the science she's trying to represent. Okay. Rather than getting into the mechanics of the science, this is not a mechanical kind of book. This is not an engineering book. No. Yeah. In fact, if you like, uh, he says reducing it, it's a hippy-dippy San Francisco hard science fiction novel. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting you say that because one of the things I think is really great about the book is it feels very contemporary. And the kind of the portrait of that world of San Francisco, I think, is actually really fun. You know, it's both affectionate but kind of a bit satiric. And, and, and it just feels very... Very kind of alive, and I liked that. I mean, I liked that sense that it was located in, in a kind of urban world that you recognise, you know, which was kind of nice. It was not, you know, in a small town, or do you know what I mean? Or in a, yeah, yeah. It, it felt very contemporary and very real, and, and and I really enjoyed those sections of it. I have to say, I thought they were really, really fun. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I. I, I, I'm a bit less convinced by the uh, the claims of hard SF to a particular kind of integrity in general. You know, I mean, I think generally if you've got a book where there's people flying to the stars, it's not very hard to start with. Um, but you know, I mean, it, it, this seems to me to take a to take a kind of pleasingly. It's more about a lightness of touch about the science than a lack of interest in the science. If that makes sense, I think that's yeah, true, but, and I think. Okay. I think another of the traps that she avoids is the trap of trying to make the, make the novel so schematic that the science fiction is clearly recognizable, astounding science fiction. Did any of you read any of the novels that uh, Piers Anthony wrote several years ago? I don't know, The series was called Split Infinity. Yeah, I, I read them all, yeah. And alternate <laughs> chapters are science fiction and alternate chapters are fantasy. And 
the science fiction is so, I don't know, so astounding 1950s. It's John W. Campbell's science fiction without violating any of the rules. They're completely uninteresting once you've got the, 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 the initial uh, schism set apart. And, of course, the fantasy in, in those novels is generic fantasy as well. What interests me here is that, no, her fantasy is not purely generic. She's drawing on a lot of different fantasy traditions. She's got witches. She has the world tree. She has mythology. Uh, and the science fiction is equally fluid. She's drawing on science fictional rhetoric, but I don't think she's trying to represent, uh, trying to work out a hard science fiction rationale for what she's doing. Can I just say I'm delighted that you mentioned Split Infinity because I hadn't really thought about it. But now I've, I've gotten, I can synopsize this book for myself very neatly. <laughs> it's Piers Anthony's Split Infinity if it was written by Charles de Lint in the 21st century. Very nice. You, you want you want Is there another version of this book coming out? Because you can have that quote put on the front cover. <laughs> but but I mean, it, it's kind of like that's what it is because it does juxtapose the two points of view. I think much more interestingly, uh, there are elements that have that warm kind of tone that come out of that 1980s, late early 90s version of urban fantasy that was pro- pro- proposed by Terry Windling and that she was a major editor for, and it came through Delint's Moonheart and other novels. Fine. And elsewhere, and you can see that actually, and it, it struck me very strongly when I was reading the novel, the sections in the bookshop in the modern period and in the later period part of the book, they're very, very much echo kind of Delint and his work, and yet it's about this possibly the most timely subject we can talk about, which is you know sort of climate change, the Anthropocene, and I right. guess this segues to a question I want to ask you. First of all, is this the most important subject that science fiction and fantasy can discuss today and second of all how important is it that as Charlie Jane has done you find some way to talk about it optimistically James (laughs) well thanks guys Um, (laughs) you write a book about climate change and then that's just it exactly Um, uh let me point out it's all full of birds again. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me with all of these books how, you know, and mine included, the, the way certain kind of tropes turn up again and again and birds, birds are one of them. Um, there's something, birds birds clearly embody something about our sense of the fragility of the biosphere and I think that's really interesting. Um, as but, do bees. As do bees. You know, bees turn up again and again. But, I mean, also, you know, also a whole series of other things, you know, parents, lost children. And these odd things that seem to keep recurring over and over again. I'm reading a book by Claire Morale at the moment called When the Floods Came. You know, lost child. (laughs) Two pages in. Um, But, look, I think that I'm always wary of anything that says this is the most important. I think it's the most important. Other people may differ. Um... But I do, I'm not convinced that it's necessary for the books to be optimistic. And in fact, to my mind, in an odd kind of way, this is perhaps more optimistic than I would be. Um, and is to some extent, I think, seduced by a kind of techno optimism that I don't necessarily share. Um, but having said that, what I think is really interesting about it is that, you know, I'm listening to all of you talking about, you know, genre and, and playing with genre and what it does with genre. One of the things I think is really interesting is that when so many of these books that are trying to talk about climate change and about kind of a, the alteration of the bias around us have such an interesting and unconventional approach to genre, 
you know, so there's there's a kind of sense that genre is becomes a set of tools that people can draw upon to kind of destabilize their narratives in different ways to look at their to look at their subject in ways that might not be possible with a straight science fiction novel or with a straight realist novel or with a straight fantasy novel. Very interesting piece by Robert McFarlane about the unsettlement of the English landscape and the rise of the eerie being a response to climate change um, last year. Look, I, I myself would argue that that's, that's because there's something kind of going on where fiction generally is being transformed. I mean, I think people keep trying to talk about kind of cli-fi or sci-fi or this kind of things. I actually think that when you start talking about the post-natural turn, because this stuff just leaks into everything. You know, my friend Ken Walk said on Facebook last year, all fiction is Anthropocene fiction now. Some of it just doesn't realise it yet, <laughs> um, which seemed to me to be about right. Uh, so, but I mean, I think that that is the thing that this, to my, to me at least, the thing that this book does brilliantly well is to find a way of simultaneously managing to engage in that conversation and to actually, in a sense, comment upon it through its structure because there's a kind of metatext within which this is embedded, which is about the collision between the two genres, which I thought was very interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very... uh, Look, I think it's an interesting book in its approach to climate change because it's not a glum one. Um, you know, and I have to tell you, it's a bit of a downer of a subject. Um, yeah, but, uh, but, but, but wait, James, it's in, anyone who sets a book 20 years into the future is going to do it. So, it, it, you know, it's reading one that does it and doesn't necessarily uh, have you slitting your wrists at the end, you know, uh, is actually quite refreshing, even if, even if it's not realistic or, or providing a true reflection of what could potentially happen. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, see, the, uh, I don't see all the birds in the sky as... As being optimistic in any in any rational or, or procedural way at all, it, it, it's it's clearly a fantasy ending. It's the kind of thing that you know, we, we've talked about uh, books like Piers Anthony that deliberately create a schism between science fiction and fantasy. This uses science fiction and fantasy to play off one another in a way that, in another way, reminds me of Arthur C. Clarke, who always painted himself into a fantasy corner with his TARDIS. I think of the nine billion names of God. There's no logical resolution to it that makes any sense. But no, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that fiction's job is to be optimistic on social or pessimistic on social issues. There's a sense, of, and this is frankly, uh, James, it's a sense I got from Clade. I did get a sense of human optimism from that, as bad as things seemed. Um, that you know, you're really operating at the level of character and not social policy, and Stan Robinson would kill me for saying that, I suppose. Um, but but by and large, all of these books are about s- some variety of survival. Um, and do we retain our humanity in the face of the inevitable? Yes, I agree with that. And in fact, what I'd say is that I always become a bit resistant to the talk of optimism, because it doesn't seem to me to be the right word. I mean, I think this book does something which is, in a sense, more important. That, that just two things, and they're both more important than that. One is it doesn't engage in the cop-out of the apocalypse, because I do think that's a cop-out. You know, that what we actually need to do is try and imagine, find ways of imagining the future, and it, and it does that. But what it also does, which I think is really important, is rather than be optimistic, is it emphasises possibility. You know, and that kind of reintroduction of contingency into the future 
is a really profound political thing to do. Yeah, and I think that that's what it does very well. It suggests that, you know, it's not one or the other that we have to choose. What we have to work out how to do is to manage both. You know, and that's that seems to me to be really important. And I, I get a bit resistant to that kind of optimistic, pessimistic line because it seems to me that it suggests that you have, as you're kind of saying, Gary, you kind of have to make a big call about what's going to happen. There's a series of much deeper issues about kind of reintroducing the notion that we might actually be able to, you know, manage the world in some sense. There might be a future and that we might have a hand in seeing what it looks like. Well, even one of the most pessimistic books I know about humanity's future, which was written decades before climate change became an issue, is George Stewart's Earth Abides, in which you watch generation after generation simply losing everything they knew. And still, from a humane point of view, it, it's, it's not the kind of thing you would properly describe as a pessimistic book because you don't come away from it with that feeling. You come away from it with the sense that human values, well, or as the title says, you know, survive somehow. Um, well, it's got, it's got this lovely idea in it of the science folk uh, setting up those silos that for... <laughs> Once we enter the the Gene Wolfe, Jack Vance sort of future history where everyone's uh, become a barbarian, that, that, that someone might stumble across the, these silos that have all the tech that existed at the time prior right. to the end of the world, that they can reignite that again, which I thought was a, a lovely idea. Even again, it's one of those throwaway ideas that's in the novel. A bit like the... Uh, it, the, the Sorry, yep. That's, no, you're correct. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, I, and, and a bit like, um, I mean, a bit like the, uh, my, one of my favourite bits, I have to say, which is the uh, Transformers uh, big robot ending, which <laughs> it still makes me laugh, I've got to say, because in a book like that, the last thing I expected was here to be big fuck-off machines that turn up trying to chomp people up. It just, it, 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 it just was crazy, which is part of why I like the book so much, and uh but again, but, but, but done, it, it, it's not the true conclusion. The true conclusion is what we've been speaking about for the last 20 minutes, but it is that lovely uh, penultimate point that has, I'm laughing because it's quite funny um, in a good way. Um, the, just over the top, completely and utterly over the top uh, in, in, in a wonderful, hilarious, but also quite graphic and Matt Fraction-y. And, yeah, going back to what we said before about Matt, that graphic comic sort of way, which, uh, yeah, gives it, yeah, makes it really fun. Sorry, I completely wanted yeah, to. Yeah. I just want to. I just wanted. To, I actually just wanted to mention. I wanted an excuse to mention the big, the big uh, transformer type robots that appear at the end. I just wanted to mention that before we got two. Oh, one of the things I remember, as you were mentioning there, one of the things I remember reading from uh, from Charlie Jane's IO Nine post was a very funny but but provocative argument that the Transformers is Age of Extinction, the last one. I don't know. <laughs> that it really has to be read as an art film. That it's 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 nothing nothing but orchestrated sensation in a kind of pure cinematic way. And she she was appreciating the film uh, in all sorts of ironic and not ironic ways at the same time. Yeah, and 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 she includes it in this, and it's just one of those wonderful things that occurs that is completely over the top. But you go, well, yeah. <laughs> this is great. I love it. Go, keep going. This is brilliant. <laughs> Yeah. And in a way, that is the thing you want to come back to about the book, isn't it? That it's so much fun. You know, I mean, there is a kind of, just a kind of pleasure in it, a kind of joy, which is which is really great, you know, and, yes, and, and unusual. Yeah. 
I will say, oh, sorry. I was going to say, it's it's this playful, warm, engaging, humanistic kind of a book. And that makes it easier to, to enjoy and kind of fall in love with the book, I think. There's also something kind of, I mean, you know, I, I have, as I say, some issues with the first third or so, but, you know, there's something kind of wonderfully kind of unexpected about it too. You know, I mean, I must say it's not the book I thought it was going to be, but it's kind of not the kind of book you expect. You know, it's, 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 it's not like other books. You know, there's something kind of just fresh about it, which I really, yes. really like. Well, actually, I'm yes. delighted that you said that because that's exactly the question that I was rehearsing in my head to ask next, which is, how, how was the book different from what you expected before you started to read it? You know, it, it, it wasn't... I don't know what I actually expected out of All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Andrews, but this wasn't necessarily it, and I kind of... For all I... Yeah, I share some reservations. I kind of fell in love with it, and I'm curious, how was it different from what you expected? Anybody? Gary can go first. Gary can go first. Oh, I... Well, my, my expectations came from having read a couple of short stories and from having read the blurb. And I would, I was, I would say again, going back to, well, I didn't see the blurb on the finished copy. I, did, I heard that for the first time. But, but the description of it, and this is true of a, a lot of the books that I like these days. The, the, the publicity for it, the, the, the cover letter for it that came from the publicity department, uh, didn't lead me to feel terribly optimistic about what I was going to see. So when I got the sense of, and I did have a sense of young adult, and I had a sense of two really smart kids, uh, and and then you have this opening with her visit to the Parliament of Birds, uh, which immediately told me, okay, this is going to be elusive all over the map. Um, and within 20 or 30 pages, I realized this is a lot better than what they told me I was going to get in the flap copy. Yeah. I would... I would say that you. I, I didn't. I, don't, I never read the back of books these days uh, because I think, yeah. Anyway, they, they either they spoil too much or skip, provide in, incorrect impressions. But um, just on the cover alone, um, I thought it was going to be this uh, quiet meditation <laughs> into uh-huh. into the, the fantastical. I didn't expect a science fiction element because that's not you know all the birds in the sky has that sort of. I think you said it before, uh, John, Charles Delinty sort of mm. meditative, uh, Robert Holdstock type, quiet meditation into the fantastic, and it's just a chaotic nutcase of a novel, uh, <laughs> which doesn't reflect the cover at all. I mean, the cover's beautiful, I've got to say. I really do like the cover, but the title and the cover <laughs> do not give you any indication of what you're about to embark on, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It'll piss some people off, but it does not piss me off. And oh, and by the way, not a, not book one in a series. No. It is from what I can tell, and done. standalone. Yeah. And God, is that just the in and of itself a refreshing thing? The Absolutely. That, the fact that she could have taken um, chunks of this book and turned it into book one, two, and three. I mean, she could have that that, that young adult element could have been book one. You know, the she could have done all the stuff with the schools as a book two, and then the book three could Absolutely. have been all when they're adults. She not fuck that, all in one book, and let's go gangbusters. Yippee, yippee, yay. Without a doubt. I mean, I I, I love that. I, I love the fact that, it, it, I mean, it is, it is, it is for all that it is smart and clever and intelligent, it's a quick read. I mean, yes. th- th- this is a, a really worthwhile book, and whilst there's nothing wrong with 600-page books and there's nothing wrong if you have something to say about trilogies of 600-page books, it's refreshing. And, and delightful. Um, I also have to say, I'm not sure I want to read 1,800 pages about climate change. <laughs> uh, 
Can I make one final, well, one point, I don't know if the final point, but one point. The, the one thing we haven't spoken about is the characters, Lawrence and uh, Patricia themselves. And it's Patricia, yeah? Is that yes. right? Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to say that my one res- major reservation reading it was Lawrence, especially how he's depicted in the second half, and specifically his relationship with Serafina, which is doomed from the moment you find out that he's in a, he's in a relationship with someone other than Patricia, because as I think, Gary, you say in your own review, it's clear from the outset that these are two characters that are going to ping off each other throughout the narrative. They'll right. never be together, or they, but they'll come close to being together, but then they'll be drift apart again, and it's going to go through those sorts of up and downs. And so you see a character like Serafina who's just being a victim, from pay, even though it's not depicted that way because they're in a, in a loving relationship. As me as a reader, knowing just knowing how this is going to turn out, you know it's going to not particularly end well for Serafina. As it happens, Charlie, I think, does a reasonably good job in trying to mitigate that. Uh, you know, Serafina doesn't go and run, run run off a bridge when all goes to shit. But to do that, there's this creepiness to Lawrence about how much he loves this girl, not not Patricia, but Serafina, and he doesn't want to lose her, and he doesn't want to lose her, and, do- and it just builds and builds, and you think, oh, God, please stop this already, because... This is obviously not where it's going to go, and so why why do that? Uh-huh. It just makes Lawrence come off as a weird stalker, creepy type, and that was my one. That's the false note, my real false note in the whole novel. I mean, you know, yeah, t- I could say tonally it's a bit all over the place early on, but that's part of the fun, and it is a huge amount of fun. But the relationship stuff, because there is a love story in this. That's that's one of the things I suppose we haven't mentioned, but there part of this is a, it's a love story. Is that the Serafina aspect and the way Lawrence goes about treating her just. It just got me. It just bugged me, and I just it bits when that when that was appearing just ugh, got me all angry in a not a good way. I don't know if anyone else had the same view. I didn't. I didn't find him as attractive a character as I found her in general. And I think that's partly because it may be easier to write a magic geek than a science geek because we've seen so many science geeks. Yeah, and, and she's also not lumbered down with a, a significant other when we meet her. She's she's playing the field a little bit. You know, she's with a couple of guys, but she's not lumbered down. So in a sense, she's always free for that time when he gets rid of the other girl, sort of, you know, and I've, I've, I've been quite uh, brutal in describing that. But, and so that's why she can be, you can be more sympathetic towards her because there's no feeling that she's going to have to do something quite horrible to someone else. Um, right. From, in a relationship point of view. And so I agree with you on that. I just, Lawrence lost me about halfway through. And, and, and look at it, it doesn't ruin the enjoyment of the book, but I, I felt very hard to like him. Fair enough. I, mean, well, I don't think... I, I think in the second half of the book, yeah, in the second half of the book, I felt very much like I was following Patricia. Well, I mean, she is certainly cast as a much more sympathetic character. I mean, there's that... She's this sort of warm, earth-mothery almost kind of character. She's going around helping people. In fact, she has to be restrained from helping people. Which seems, to, which makes her an even more attractive character. Whereas, to some degree, there is, if you like, circling around Lawrence the idea of a suspicious, a suspicion of science itself. You know, because the people he's with, you're not sure the technology is actually going to be reliable. You're not sure that they're going to be trustworthy and fine. Even if he's okay, because we've seen him as a youth and we feel warmly towards him. We have our doubts about the people he's with. I mean, yes, we have the doubts yes. about the way the people she's with as well on the, on the, the fantasy side. They're not. Yeah. But it's almost like you give that a bit more of a pass. I mean, um, 
and yes, I, I think you know there's certainly something to say, to, uh, Ian, about an element of Lawrence being darker than than Patricia. And I mean, the experiences that he goes through in the first part of the novel are darker in many ways than the ones Patricia goes through as well. You know, and so that's well, he goes through what he goes through the boarding school thing, which is pretty terrifying, but then gets rather conveniently rescued from it, actually. <laughs> Well, I mean, the first first part of the novel is a a tale of convenience a little bit. I mean, any time when you can sit in a, as you say, in a, in a shopping mall and pretend that someone's an, a, you know, a, a ninja assassin and then find out that he's actually a ninja assassin is always going to be a tale of convenience. That. But, you know, it's, it's, the, the it's other thing cool. I like, yeah. just, this, this is purely, okay, this is one of the things that I, uh, is purely a personal reaction coming from academia. And you mentioned the fact that Patricia gets in trouble for doing good works. She's going out at night and doing small magical favors for people. Not, and, and simply by virtue of that, she gets accused of aggrandizement by her magical peers. And I thought, this sounds exactly like a young assistant professor publishing too many articles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, it's just you, Gary, to bring it back to academia. That's <laughs> I, I think on a purely selfish reading experience level, I'll say this. You know, when you set down a 300-page novel by, you know, like this one, and you hear that Charlie Jane is writing a completely unrelated science fiction novel about exoplanets or something, but doesn't want to say too much about it, I find that rather than a writer who I'm willing to like wait to read something else by, I'm really eager to read Charlie yes. Jane's next book. You know, absolutely. If, if I thought that I was up for volume, you know two of the series with nine more to come, I would feel like I had perhaps put Charlie Jane in a spot and gone, well, that's what Charlie Jane does. I know what Charlie Jane does. I can now look for something else. Which maybe is, a, is, is the perspective of someone who reads too much rather than a, a normal casual reader. But I find myself really excited to see where Charlie Jane will go next. No, it's, it's the same with me and, and like we said with Adam Roberts, we're always excited where he might go next because he does that. It's the same with Charlie Jane. I didn't know about this exo, was it exoplanet sort of that novel. That, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, I think it should be. Well, it seems to me that we've managed to, Gary, you know, sort of against all your expectations to talk about a single novel for nearly an hour. So this might be... Well, you're absolutely right. And, there, and, there, and there's more we've not talked about. So well, I... I... I stand corrected. There you go. Well, maybe we should, unless there's something anybody really wants to talk about, maybe we should leave that f for a bar conversation somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I will say this is a book that, that I recommend very highly. I do expect to see it, not that I think it's that important, on awards ballots next year. Uh, I'm probably most gratified to see that it's being widely read. It's showing up on bestseller lists. I'm going to be fascinated to see sort of how the world ends up responding it. Now, as we reach the end of our, our podcast, are, are we ready to sort of just mention where we think we might go next? I mean, have, have we decided on what, what, what the roundtable will discuss at the end of March? I was happy with the suggestion you made now that I have the book, so... So, so we're probably, we, we think we're likely to be, you know, listeners, we're likely to be discussing Kingfisher by Patricia McKillop next month. Uh, which should be an interesting change of pace. Yes. James, are you okay with that? I haven't looked at it yet, so yes, I'm completely fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let, let, let's be fair. We, we, we will have a little uh, talk, listeners, and we'll come back, and we will let you know. what. But, but, it, but it may well be uh, that book. Until then, 
Thank you, Gary. You're welcome. Thank you, James. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Ian, for coming up with the idea for the podcast and being partner in crime. It's a pleasure. You don't have to say that at the end of each episode. Though. Well, you got to. Find, well, I mean, what do you do? You just go. Well, oh, well. The, look, you had an hour. That's your lot. Goodbye. <laughs> no, no, I, no. I want you to say thank you. I'm, I'm, that's fine. But not, you don't have to say thank you for coming up with the idea of the podcast. Uh, but, but anyway, yes, it's yes. been great, Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. Well, and thank you all for listening to to this second episode of the Crude Street Roundtable. We will be back at the end of March discussing another book. We do. Well, I do encourage you to, if, you know, if you're crazy enough to have listened to this podcast without having read all the Birds in the Sky, I strongly recommend you do out and read it. I don't think the discussion, for all it gives lots away, really undercuts the experience of reading the book sufficiently that you wouldn't get a lot out of it anyway. Highly recommend it. Until then, we will talk to you all next month. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.